The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. If you would grab your Bibles, open up to chapter or to Psalm chapter 111. That's where we're going to take our text from this morning. If you're here this morning and you need Bibles, stick your hand high up in the air. We'll make sure one of the guys gets a Bible to you and, we'll, and, uh, and pass one around. We've got one over here and one back there in the back. Excellent. Psalm 111. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Full of splendor and majesty is His work, and His righteousness endures forever. He has caused His wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful, He provides food for those who fear Him, and He remembers His covenant forever. He has shown His people the power of His works and giving them the inheritance of the nations. The works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They're established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. He sent redemption to his people, and he's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word this morning. Today, as we, as we talk about blowing apart another commonly held myth, I, I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would illuminate for us the depth of meaning in the text today, that you would equip us for the work of ministry And Lord, that you would fuel our worship of you through understanding how awesome and magnificent your works are. So Lord, we invite you right now. Lord, speak to us. Use your word. Use the things that we talk about to draw our attention to you. In the name of Jesus, for his glory. Amen. Well, we are in our second teaching of our series, Mythbusters, where we're going to be breaking apart common misconceptions uh, that, are, that are held. I have to confess, I would have had slides for you, but uh, my, my computer had a hiccup this morning, and I lost all of my notes from the week and had to rebuild everything in about the last hour and a half. So, For those of you who are taking notes, 
uh, I'm gonna try and be really clear on those points so that you can kind of track with my logic. Without the visual prompts, you have to really tune in and be listening a little bit better. Um, today, we're gonna be breaking apart the myth that Christianity is opposed to science. That Christianity is opposed to science. Now, one of the most interesting and often repeated falsehoods that I hear in the world today is the idea that, that Christians somehow are only faith-based and science is fact-based and, um, and therefore they, they, they sit at opposite ends of a spectrum. And there really isn't any meeting in the middle. I hear it repeated not just online, or over the airways, or in documentaries, but I hear in interpersonal conversations that I have with friends and with family. I have a family member who loves to send me the latest scientific article that he's hoping is going to sort of pick away at my faith and, and maybe undermine some of my, my reasoning and believing in God. Now, to be fair, this myth has its roots in historical events. Perhaps some of you are aware of some of these major face-offs between the scientific community and the community of faith throughout history. Some of the more famous ones are the issue of Copernicus and Galileo. Copernicus believed in a heliocentric universe. That is one where the sun sat in the middle and the earth is the one that actually moved and rotated around the sun and that the planets did the same. And, and so Copernicus shared his findings and his beliefs in a time, in an era where it was a commonly held belief that this was not true, that the earth was, in fact, the center of the universe. And, and because of the perspective of a mankind here on the earth, that, you know, here I am, I'm standing, I'm not moving. It's obvious that the heavens are moving. Well, people had a hard time receiving it and believing it. And among the people that had a hard time believing and receiving that uh, were various religious leaders within the Catholic Church. A few short years later, a guy named Galileo, who was in fact Catholic, was living during a time when the telescope was invented. And in that season, he, he began to record meticulously observations that he was making about the universe, about the sky, the heavens, and, and the heavenly bodies that he saw up there. And Galileo was a devout Catholic, but through the course of time, he began to believe that Copernicus was right. He, he saw the Milky Way and the, the mountains that, and the valleys that were on the moon. This was one of those times where it was like all of a sudden, you know, his eyes are open to what is out there in space. And it took him a while to work up the courage to bring his ideas to the forefront because Copernicus had been shot down so fully by the Catholic Church. Now, it wasn't the belief so much that he held that, that caused him hardship as much as it was the publications of his beliefs. 
On All Saints Day, after publishing his work and his findings, on All Saints Day, a, a Catholic priest in Rome preached the very first sermon against Galileo and saying that he was a borderline heretic and that he was undermining the authority of Scripture. Because what are we? T- if that is true, if what Galileo says is true, that the, that the universe is heliocentric, then, then what are we to say about events that happen in the Bible where, where, um, where Joshua tells the sun to stand still, for instance? Did God stop the entire universe? It doesn't make sense, he said. And so he says, you're, under, you're undermining the authority of Scripture. Now, Galileo responded by saying that there's plenty of evidence to suggest that Scripture must be interpreted in some places not to have literal meaning, but in some places there is use of poetic language. And he gave the example of the phrase, the hand of God. He said, uh, we must not believe that it was an actual appendage with five fingers. Like there's, there's a use of language here that, that leaves open the possibility of different understandings of what is taking place in Scripture. So he, he wasn't against the Scriptures. He wasn't opposed to faith. He was a man of faith himself. He just said, I think that there's room here to look at the Scriptures differently in light of what we're learning, to see the poetry that is there. I love this quote from Galileo. He said, I do not feel obliged to believe that the same God who, was endowed, who has endowed us with senses, with reason and intellect, has intended us to forego their use and by some other means to give us knowledge which we can attain by them. Let me summarize what Galileo's saying there. He's like, God made us. He made us kind of smart. You know, smarter than maybe other life forms that are here on this earth. And we have powers of observation, and it seems if God gave those powers of observation to us, that we, maybe we should use those to understand the world around this. Furthermore, Galileo stated, the Bible teaches us how to go to heaven, not how the heavens go. Unfortunately, he was met with a trial and ultimately was forced to recant his work. He had to retract his writings. And at 75 years of age, he lived out the rest of his life from that point forward on house arrest, having to say that he was wrong about his findings. It took another 300 years of history for him to be exonerated. And finally, in 1822, the Catholic Church said, well, maybe Galileo was right. Later on in history, of course, Charles Darwin published his work titled On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of the Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. That's the full title. And in this book, Darwin gave evidence for how he believed it possible for the differentiation of species through genetic mutation. And that natural selection caused certain traits to rise to the surface over the process of time 
as creatures adapted to their environment. Now, this opened up a firestorm in the world. The reason for this is that among a society that was largely held as religious and in believing in God, it opened up a possibility that maybe there was some natural means by which humans came to existence, maybe even apart from the hand of God. In particular, humans were most concerned about their own ancestry because it was suggested that we could have come from apes. Now this caused a bunch of controversy and within a few years, Darwin made changes to his manuscripts in later editions. And in later editions of the book, Darwin traced evolutionary, uh, evolutionary ideas as far, as, as far back as Aristotle, um, the text he cites is a summary by Aristotle of the ideas of an earlier Greek philosopher called uh, Empedocles, um, early Christian church fathers. He also cited them and medieval European scholars. He cited them to say that there have been differing views of creation throughout the ages and that the Genesis creation narrative might actually be better understood allegorically than literally in six 24-hour days. Again, Darwin was arguing that there is compatibility between his belief and that there still could be a creator God who started it all and set the whole thing in motion. After this time in the early 1900s, there was the famous Scopes Monkey Trial. Perhaps some of you saw the movie Inherit the Wind or, or, or perhaps saw the play or were a part of the play in high school. It's a popular one to do. In which there was a face-off between creationists and scientists or evolutionary scientists that takes place in a courtroom. And really it chronicles the story of an actual court case that took place between John Scopes and the state of Tennessee in which there was a law that was passed called the Tennessee Butler Act. And the Tennessee Butler Act was, said that it was wrong for schools to teach evolution, that human evolution was, was not, it was not legal for them to teach that in a state-funded school. So there was a substitute teacher named John Scopes, and John Scopes volunteered himself, essentially, to break this law and teach it anyway, or at least claim that he did, in order that the ACLU could take up his case and fight this with the state, and there was a big court battle that ensued. A face-off between two heavy hitters in the world at that time, a guy named William Jennings Bryan and uh, a lawyer for the ACLU, named Clarence Darrow. And during the course of the trial, this was the first time that a trial was being publicly broadcast over the airwaves. And so people all throughout the country were like tuning in to hear sort of like creationists versus evolutionists, the Bible versus science. And it was being hailed in, in such a way that it, it was a huge, huge media event for the time. And, and as a matter of fact, it was actually, we find out, um, 
after the fact that was engineered by a lot of businessmen to bring business into the community in which the trial was happening because they knew that the media would be used to bring lots of people to come and see and hear the events of this trial for themselves. But to be fair, William Jennings Bryan, who was religious but a, also a very proud man, was woefully unprepared for the court case that he was about to deal with, and he got spanked intellectually in the courtroom and made a fool of. Now, even though the case didn't actually really decide anything, the law had been repealed before the case was finally finished, in the end, John, uh, uh, John Scopes ended up having to pay, uh, I think it was a total of $50 as a fine for breaking the statute of the time, not for actually teaching evolution, but he had broken that statute at the time. So he paid $50 and the whole thing dropped and fizzled out. But it lives on in infamy in education circles because it is seen as this moment where religion was interfering with science. In response to this moment, Fundamentalist Christians tightened their grip and controls. They began to publish the, what's called the Fundamentalist Papers. And as a consequence of that, they, they, they sort of calcified even more. They, they said, no, 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 we don't want to hear the other side. We don't want to think about what anybody else might believe or even refute it. These things are true no matter the cost, no matter the consequence. And so this series of articles was printed called the Christian Fundamentals or the Fundamentals of the Christian Faith. And this led into a series of battles back and forth all throughout the last century, I can remember these kinds of debates taking place in high school. Now, I went to Hidden Valley High School. Uh, that's not where they make ranch. It's actually a small little place out near Murphy. And uh, this was a regular topic of conversation throughout my high school period, you know, the, the, the battle between science and religion or science and faith. And every once in a while, you know, the Times will pick up some article, and, and it seems to just sort of reinforce this idea that there's, there's this fact view, or this fact-based worldview, and then there's this faith-based worldview, and the fact-based worldview is saying, look, I only believe what I can see with my own eyes, what I, what I can test, and what's repeatable, and on, on the faith-based worldview, I, I, I believe whatever I want to believe. Like whatever I choose, whatever I decide to believe, that's the faith-based worldview. But is it actually true? Is that actually true? I don't think so. You know, it's interesting. In this battle over evolution and creation, did you know that scholars among biblical creationists people who believe that God created the heavens and the earth, have at least nine orthodox views about the story of Genesis and the story of creation. Nine different orthodox views. There's theistic evolution in which God sort of sets things in motion. Man, man come, mankind comes as a byproduct of an engineered process that God himself ordained. That's one view. There's the gap theory view in which 
There is a gap between Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 and the rest of chapter 1 which can accommodate maybe even millions of years. Then there's the day-age theory. That is that each of the successive seven days or six days of creation, the seventh day rest, that they could be talking not necessarily about literal 24-hour days, but they could be talking about epics of history, and it has to do with the Hebrew word yom, or the word for day. And that sometimes in the Bible, the word yom is used to speak of a literal 24-hour period, but in other places, the exact same word is used to speak of significantly longer periods of time. So that's an orthodox view as well. And again, could accumulate for millions or perhaps even billions of years. Then there's the punctuated, there's the punctuated 24-hour theory. There's scientific creationism. There's the literal perspective that says that it happened in six days that God created the universe old in the same way that he created Adam as fully mature and Eve as fully mature. Now when he made the world, he made it to be inhabited. So if God's big enough to create everything, maybe he just made it so it was ready to live in. There's the literary framework view in which God is filling on one day and creating on the next day and it counts for long periods of time, there's historical creationism. There is a, a poetic view that says that actually what's happening there in the first chapters of Psalm, when you see, or in the first chapter of Genesis, is when you see this repeated phrase, and the morning and the evening were the first day, and the morning and the evening were the second day, that that, that is actually the same kind of framework that is used other places in Scripture in poetry. And so that view, that perspective says that what is actually happening in Genesis 1 is not a literal blow-by-blow account of everything being created as God sought within a 24-hour period. Actually, what you see there is a song or a poem, if you will, about the beauty of God's creation and the magnificence of his power to create. And so you see, even within this, this debate of creationism versus evolution, there is a whole lot of different ways of looking at scripture that can accommodate those belief systems. However, this often repeated and commonly held myth doesn't actually seem to hold any water that science is opposed or that Christianity is opposed to science as you begin to drill down. In fact, even the scientific community surprisingly has come to the defense of Christians and to people of faith. Recently a book was published titled Galileo Goes to Jail and Other Myths About Science and Religion. It was edited by Ronald Numbers. It was published by the Harvard Press. And this book actually it has multiple chapters. I think there's like 19 chapters, and they're written by, each chapter is written by a different author, a different scholar, on some sort of myth relating to the integration of science and religion. They come from a variety of backgrounds. 
And in the introduction, the editor makes this statement. He says, nearly half of the authors, 12 of 25, self-identify as agnostic or atheist, that is, unbelievers in religion. Among the remaining 13, there are five mainstream Protestants, two evangelical Protestants, one Roman Catholic, one Jew, one Muslim, one Buddhist, and a partridge in a pear tree. And this book is saying, look, there's this perpetuated lie that is happening in the world that, that Christianity or that religion itself is opposed to science. And the, the scientific community is saying that's not actually true. Did you know that 65% of Nobel Prize winners are people of faith and largely the majority of them are Christian? Did you know that? This has been the case throughout history. The contributions to science have always been given in part, at least, by people of faith. You see, for for the Christian, for the person who believes in God, their love of God fuels their devotion to scientific study. That is, their view that God is infinitely wise, that he knows what he's doing, fuels in them this sense that as I discover things about the world around me, the nature around me, all of a sudden I'm coming into contact with the wisdom of God displayed in the things that are made. You know, the father of modern genetics was a monk. A monk who liked to breed pea plants in his backyard and keep records meticulously of them and of the weather and things that were happening. And he would take a little paintbrush and he would cross-pollinate these pea pods in his backyard. And, And he's the father of modern genetics. The father of the Big Bang Theory was a Catholic priest, George Lemaitre. He put forward the idea in 1927 that the universe had not always existed, that it was not eternal in the present state as it is throughout time and eternity past. In fact, he said, no, I don't think so. Given what we know about what is there and the fact that the universe seems to be expanding, if you run it backwards and you run the math calculations backward, I I think that it means that the universe at one point was not infinitely big, but infinitely small, a very small, tightly packed, very dense particle, a sort of super particle that exploded. He's the father of the Big Bang Theory, and there was no inconsistency between his scientific belief and his belief in God. In the more modern age, you've got Francis Collins, the man who pioneered the decoding of the human genome. He converted to Christianity in his 20s. You know, he, a matter of fact, like, what happened was is he was a staunch atheist, and he began to read the works of C.S. Lewis. He read Mere Christianity, and it began to undo the basis of his beliefs 
in atheism. And he realized I hadn't really thought this out or, or really began to you know, wrestle with whether or not this was true. I just assumed that Christianity and that faith was dumb, that it was only for ignorant people who believe in fairy tales and the Easter Bunny and you know, uh, Santa Claus or whatever. But as he began to study and to read, he became convinced, and he said, man, it created such internal wrestling because I knew that once I believed, I was going to have to give up something. And he was on a hike in the Pacific Northwest, in the Cascades, and Francis Collins, while he was on a mountainside by himself, hiking, faced with the beauty of creation, fell to his knees and gave his life to Jesus. And he's the father of, or he's the, the reason that we've been able to decode the, the human genome. Guys, listen, the, the list goes on and on. Here's the point. Science is not something for Christians to overcome in order to believe. Science is the very thing that has fueled the worship of God throughout the ages. That's the reality. Going back to our text here in, in Psalm chapter 111, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart in the company of the upright, in the congregation. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Here's what the psalmist says. Anybody who studies the works of the Lord is going to be brought to a place of praise. Science, listen, for those of you taking notes, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 111, book of Psalms, science is fuel for worship. That's what the Bible says. If you study his works... If you think about creation, you look at what's going on, you see the vastness of the universe and its bigness, or you, you dive down and you get down into the, the atomic structure and thinking about quantum mechanics and, and you really begin to break that, you are going to come to a place where you are absolutely in awe of who God is. Science is fuel for worship. The psalmist then goes on to say this in verse 3. Full of splendor and majesty is his work, and his righteousness endures forever. Not only is science fuel for worship, but science is fuel for awe. When, when he's talking here, he says, full of splendor and majesty is his word. He's saying, like, when I think about the things that you do, God, I realize how small I am. Like, I'm the peasant, you're the king. I'm like small and little and tiny and insignificant and you are full of majesty and splendor and you are amazing, God. See, one of the errors in logic that I think people can make sometimes is to say that science can somehow tell us everything. The problem is that on the inside, the scientists themselves do not see that as true. 
In fact, most of them are hugely aware of the deficits of science. The deficits that there are in scientific knowledge. You know, at, at Oxford, there are buildings that are dedicated to a guy named Sir Peter Medawar. And he wrote a book called The Limits of Science, where he said, we do no good to science by saying that science isn't limited. We can't even answer the questions of a small child. Where do I come from? Why am I here? What is the meaning of life? He goes on to say, for answers to these questions, we must look to religion and to philosophy. <laughs> Listen, here's the deal. Science cannot even explain to us why science works. Think about that for just a moment. The entire universe functions according to logical laws. And those laws just are. How did they get there? Why does gravity function the way that it does? How come math works for some of us? <laughs> right? Like, they're, they're, they're just like, when you think about DNA, for example, DNA is a coded language that determines how molecules will align themselves in human organic bodies. It's a written code that determines whether or not you will have a certain color of eyes and what your hair will be like and how tall you'll be and whether or not in midlife you'll get a little paunch right here. Science can't tell us why that's there. It can observe the fact that it is there. It can say that it works. It can observe how the laws implement themselves, but it can't tell us why the laws are there in the first place. Why should we believe, then, that science can explain everything? It, it can't, and scientists themselves acknowledge this. There's a great quote by C.S. Lewis that I, I, I meant to grab it and I, I didn't get it here, but I'm going to summarize in my own words essentially what it means. He says, if science is true, then we cannot trust scientists. And he says, this is the reason why. If and in the scientific world, what was being touted at, at, at the time, we are all just random particles crashing into each other. That at, at, at the very basic level, what is happening is you have atomic particles that have aligned themselves in specific ways, and they are now crashing into each other. There is no such thing as consciousness. There is no, the, the consciousness is this sort of a illusion, but really, Everything is just forces of natural cause causing the atoms of our body to align in certain ways and they bump into each other and create sparks of electricity that are sort of the illusion of life. And he's like, okay, but if you believe that, can you trust your thinking on it? I mean, if just random atoms inside your brain are bumping into each other and causing a spark, then can you trust the logic that you're using to determine what your brain must be doing. I don't think so. 
Why would we trust our computer if you found out that the existence of the computer in the first place was the fortuitous, spontaneous result of an unguided process? How many of you would say, okay, I'm going to get on my computer today, and I, this is not an Apple computer or a, a, you know, a, a Windows computer. What happened was I was walking down the beach, and the waves were crashing and churning on the shore, and the sand and the silica were being stirred up by the waves, and as the water washed away, everything that is in my computer just appeared by the forming of molecules of super fortuitous, and now I'm going to trust everything that it says. Does that make any sense to you? No, absolutely not. If it is an unguided process, we know through experience and through scientific method demonstrated over and over and over again that unguided processes do not tend to benefit a species. Isn't it better then to know that it has purpose and meaning and that perhaps my brain and life and the world around us was intended by an incredibly intelligent, supernatural being. To use another analogy, let me put it to you like this. Science is asking different questions than people of faith oftentimes. So one of the ways that you could look at it, you say, you know, why is the tea kettle boiling on the stove? You can ask that question. Scientists will say, well, because the, the particles of hydrogen and oxygen have been heated to such a degree that those particles are beginning to break apart and it's transferring from a liquid to a gas. That's why the tea kettle is boiling on the stove. And you might say, actually, the tea kettle is boiling on the stove because I've got a friend coming over for tea. That's why it's boiling on. It's observing the same things, but you're asking different questions of the information, right? Science is, is asking, how does this happen? Religion, philosophy is asking, why? Why is this happening? Now, because science is constantly telling us about the amazing detail of the universe that we live in, the way that it's ordered and ruled by laws, the statistical impossibility of our existence given its hostility, Christians look at the tea kettle of information that scientists give us and they find their jaw dropping at the wisdom and magnificence and the awe of who God is. We're not so much obsessed or concerned with the mechanics of it, although the intricacy of it is amazing. But when we think about why those things function the way that they do, we begin to look upward and go, how amazing is God? How infinitely wise is he? Isn't it incredible that no matter what area of study I might get into and how I might be observing the natural world around me, that I find myself being brought again and again to a place of if this didn't happen, then this wouldn't happen, and all life everywhere wouldn't exist. Isn't God wise? 
If the earth didn't hang the precise distance from the moon and the moon didn't, didn't rotate in a, in a certain way around the earth and then if, if the sun was too far away or if it, if, if it was too close and, and if gravity was a little bit stronger or a little bit weaker and, and if light didn't have to come through our atmosphere and if we didn't have this protective shield around, you start adding all of these things up and you go, gosh, God is super, super smart. He must be infinitely wise. I am in awe of how small I am in comparison to him. You see, science then becomes fuel for awe. Verses 4 through 7. He has caused his wondrous works to be remembered. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He provides food for those who fear him. He remembers his covenant forever. He has shown his people the power of his works in giving them the inheritance of the nation. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. Listen, science is not only fuel for awe, but science is fuel. Listen, science is fuel for faith. In verses 4 through 7, the psalmist says, think about what God must be like. Think about his heart. Like, who is he? He provides food for everybody on the planet. Jesus uses the same logic in the Gospels. You remember in the Gospels when he's telling you, like, don't be anxious for anything. Don't let anxious rule, anxiousness rule over you. Argue with your anxiety a little bit. I mean, if God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is gone tomorrow, if he, if he makes it beautiful, and it's, so, it's here for just a matter of days, and we use it to start fires with the next day. If he makes it beautiful and provides rain for it, if he causes rain to fall on just people who love him and serve him and want to follow him, and the unjust so that their crops grow, those who are in rebellion against him and don't want anything to do with him, if he cares for them, what kind of God is it that you're serving? He's gracious. He's loving. He cares. If he cares about sparrows, right? They don't build barns. They don't store everything up for the winter. They just, they just live and eat and occasionally hit a window. But if he cares about sparrows or ants or fungus or spiders or dolphins or whales, don't you think he cares about you? See, here's, here's, here's what's going on. The psalmist, he says, as I think about God's work in the world and the way that he provides for life and he cares about creatures and, he, he, and I think about all the things that he has done to preserve us as his people and to intervene in our lives. When I think about all of that, I, I, I learn something about the heart of who God is. It, it builds into me a sense of confidence and trust into what kind of God I serve. It fuels my faith, my trust, my fide, in him. It's 
See, that's what faith is. Faith simply means to trust. It's from the Latin, fide. And it is not opposed to science. Matter of fact, science oftentimes is the very thing that causes us to be confident in the nature and character of God. When all of a sudden you look up into the universe and you go, you know, space is kind of a hostile place. And here we are floating on a rock in the middle of it. And constantly, I don't know if you guys saw here a couple of weeks ago, Australia almost got clipped by a, a giant meteor. Came through, uh, there's a big sonic boom and 150 miles out in the ocean, this meteor hit out in the ocean and the sonic boom itself was of nuclear proportions. But, Australia's still there. And you know what helped protect it? The atmosphere that God put around the earth. It burns up a lot of meteors. And the moon that is out there that takes a lot of the impact of stray space garbage that's trying to pommel us. You go, that seems kind of smart. And you start to think, okay, if this was intended, if this was designed, then, then maybe God is really protective of us and loving. Maybe there's some things I can learn about God's heart, and it fuels, you see, our trust, our confidence in who he is. Science, on the other hand, as opposed to faith, simply means knowledge. It's from the Latin word scientia means knowledge. This is an important differentiation because science has come to mean the natural sciences. And what a lot of people mean when they think about science now is they mean that everything has its origins in something natural and makes no possibility for something supernatural. Everything is explainable until you get into quantum mechanics, quantum physics. Then you realize like nothing is obeying the rules. <laughs> What's going on here? Until you start to think about consciousness, like right here, I, I heard this guy Brian Cox on a, on a, um, a who's a, 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 a physicist, um, and and he was on a, a podcast that I was listening to, in which he said, you know, there probably is no soul, because with instrumentation we can we can detect, you know, very small amounts of forces that uh, that. Um, that affect physical matter. So when molecules move, we, we, we can tell what forces are being used to move those molecules. And so uh, if there was some sort of a soul, we would be able to measure that scientifically, and, um, and, and then we would know, you know, what, what the soul is, what kind of energy or what, what is causing it uh, to work. But, but then, you know, as I'm listening to him, he's saying confidently, there, there is no such thing as the soul. I, I'm thinking to myself, okay, but... Does that mean then that at a, a basic level, I cannot dictate to my arm, move left or move right? Is that happening because chemical reactions are happening in my brain and I don't actually have the will, I have the illusion of my own will, um, but, but really my arm moving left and right has nothing to do with my own will, it's just the, the crashing together of chemical reactions in my brain. Well, probably not. Probably there's something behind my brain telling it what to think and how to animate itself and what to do. And see here the psalmist looks at the works of God and he's brought to a place of faith. He goes, man, he must be good. I trust him. 
There's a lot of things I can't understand, and when I come up against those things I can't understand and don't get, and I, and I see that God's hand in that, I go, he's smarter than me, he's wiser than me, and he must be really amazing and personal and loving as a consequence. There is really no conflict between Christianity and science. It's only a perceived battle. It's a myth that is initiated in society that sometimes quells our faith. Science is fuel for our faith. Faith in God's character in verses 4 and 5. Faith in God's power in verses 6 through 8. And then in verse 9 he says this. He sent redemption to his people and he's commanded his covenant forever. Holy and awesome is his name. Science is fuel for salvation. When you see the wisdom of God... When you come up against the fact that the laws of the universe are governing the way the universe works and that the Bible starts out with a premise that God said, do it this way, and the, everything that has been made obeys those laws. When you come up against that, all of a sudden, you find yourself in a position of thinking about his omnipotence, his omniscience, You see, the same God who holds the heavens together is the same God who secured our redemption through his son. That's the beauty of it. If we see, listen, if we see his faithfulness in creation and his wisdom in creation and then he sends his son to redeem us, all of a sudden, guys, we start looking at the redemption that he's provided in the same way as the laws of gravity. We start looking at the redemption he's provided and we put our trust in it the same way I trust gravity to hold me to this stage right now. The same way I trust the sun to come up in the morning or the earth to rotate into the sun. I all of a sudden am finding myself through science depending even more so upon the redemption and salvation that God provides to me through his son. Now science can be used in evil ways, right? Just like anything else, like sex can be used for good and the building up of a marriage and bonding and it can also be used for destruction. Music, whatever, religion, church can be used for good. It can be used to destroy people too. It can be used for destruction. So there's a, there's a bad way to use it, but listen, there is also a way that science is a tremendous gift. When we allow science to find its purpose in God, it becomes one of the greatest adventures to embark upon. Letting the skies and atoms cause your jaw to drop at the wisdom of God fuels your passion to discover more and more about him, to plumb the depths of his intelligence. It pushes you to take your intellect to the very max frontier that it can possibly go to, to the maximum that it can deliver. So we can make some mistakes, and there's a few little things that I want to warn us of. We can make some mistakes in the household of faith. First one is that we can diminish science. In an effort to hold on to our faith, sometimes churches do this. They say science is, you know, science is wrong. We, we only believe in God. We only trust it. Listen, we should be relying upon science. It's important, especially like if you go to the heart doctor, you want him to be a good scientist right? You want to understand the laws of physics and how your car works. You want to be a good scientist. That's just important. 
As Christians, we must be willing to examine the evidence. We must be willing to look into and explore the world that God created. In fact, believing there is a God who brilliantly put the universe to order and governs it by logical laws is the fuel that should make us excellent scientists. You should raise up little kids to love science, to love history and archaeology and outer space, and you should push them to, to think about the grandeur of God in those places. Second thing, we can divide society. We can say, well, there's a secular world, and it's hostile, and then there's the, the, the divine world, the sacred world, and, 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 and it's good, and then we pit them against each other, and we stop listening to one another. Man, there are a lot of things that science needs to hear from Christianity about the ethics of life and the kind of research that is, is acceptable, about the morality of what is happening about the impact of belief systems and what it does to the human soul. Science needs to hear from us. And guys, we need to hear from science. We need it. Now, physics cannot tell us how quantum particles work. Astronomy can observe the stars but not explain how they got here or what caused matter to exist. Anthropology can tell us about the history and behavior of humans, but it can't tell us about conscious, what consciousness is. It can't explain the origin of life. Biology can tell us about conditions that are needed for life to exist, but it cannot tell us how life got here in the first place. We need to speak into one another's worlds. We can't live in a divided place any longer. Thirdly, we can divide the church with science. We say, you know, my view is the right view, and if you don't believe this, in my six literal days of creation, you're an idiot. Or if you don't believe this in theistic evolution, you're stupid. Look, that's dumb. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't divide over stupid stuff. Instead, weigh the evidence. Have friendly dialogue and worship God together. And lastly, we can derail the gospel. By getting caught up in controversy, we stop preaching about the main issue, which is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Amen. As Mitch comes up to worship, I'm gonna invite the brothers to come forward and to receive today's tithes and offerings. We're gonna continue in a mode of worship in response to God's word. After the, uh, the tithes and offerings are received, Mitchell will prompt you to uh, be able to come and receive communion as well. Let's pray real quick. Father, thank you for your word. And thank you for all that you teach us through the world around us. Now use it, Lord, for your glory in our lives. Teach us, Lord, to be in awe of you. Fuel our hearts to worship with wisdom. In Jesus' name, amen.
morning we want to take some time uh, to remember when, when Jesus was literally lifted up on that cross to take the wrath of God for our sin that we might become uh, the righteousness of God. We want to remember the cross this morning and the blood of the new covenant. We want to remember uh, Jesus' body that was broken for us and his perfect life. So we're going to do that at the table of communion. Uh, we're going to sing two more songs. Uh, but the tables are now open, guys, as we just fix our eyes to the Son who willingly laid his life down on our behalf. So at any point, guys, you guys can come forward to receive communion and um, take it by yourselves, take it with your families, but um, be led in that way, and we'll just continue to, to lift up the King.
Worthy of it. 
lift you up and give you praise. God, thanks for this encouragement out of your word. Uh, just to know that, to know and ponder the, the fact that you created all things and you hold all things together. Yeah, what, what an amazing God you are. And all we can give is our worship and our praise to you. And, and Lord, we just pray that this morning, that everything we've, we've sung, everything that we've lifted up in song, it would be from our hearts that we would just glorify you. We pray that this time has honored you as that masterful creator, full of wisdom. We love you so much. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, hey, thank you guys so much for worshiping with us this morning. Uh, have a great rest of your Sunday, and we'll see you next week. Or fellowship night on Wednesday. Yes. Bye, guys. Yeah. Dreamed anything good